Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this glorious Monday on the sixth day of March in the great year of 2023. I may or may not be Sean Weiss. Uh, We're not sure yet. I did smack my head very hard over the weekend uh, getting onto the tractor. I have a a good egg, as Terry has pointed out. I appear to be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde today with my personality disorder. Um, But as far as I know, I think I still am Sean Weiss, but we'll find out whether or not I am if I make any sense later on today. But as always, I am joined by my esteemed, I'm going to use my esteemed panel of subject matter experts, uh, Scott Kraft, who is in Honolulu, Hawaii, taking time away from his vacation I don't know if it's well deserved or not, but he is I would have never known the, Sean uh, if it wasn't for that shirt. Yeah, he, he is definitely okay. in the let's let everybody who's a local here know that I'm not from here. So when I walk down one of the seedy alleys, they'll go, That's a tourist. I I'm pretty sure they figure it out on. before they got to this shirt. <laughs> okay. Then we have Terry Fletcher, Paul Spencer, Stephanie Allard. And Christine Hall. So welcome to everybody. It is great to uh, see you all. Thank you for being here. And we have a lot that we are going to uh, get to today. So with that said, uh, I want to welcome you all to the podcast. Thank you. Hey, Sean. Hey, everybody. I got one thank you. I got one thank you. And it actually appears that our stream to LinkedIn may actually not be working today. So uh, not sure with what's going on there. But as the conversations are taking place, I will um, make sure that we get this out because I did see where it posted before. Uh, But let's go ahead and let's jump straight into our our podcast, our roundtable today. And I want to begin by talking about CAC, Computer Assisted Coding. So I'm going to throw it out there. Who wants to take this one first? Christine, go ahead. I want to take the next topic first. <laughs> oh, great. Since you're um, the one that's in, what do you call it? Audit hell? We're yeah. To say that. That's exactly where I'm at right now. And, and what I'm getting is a lot of pushback from providers who have become so dependent on the computer assist coding and don't quite embrace the idea that your EMR is a tool and the computer assist is just trying to do that, assist you. Hey, 
looks like this diagnosis. Hey, it looks like it might be this procedure code, but by no means has it done the proper calculations. It's a suggestion there. And I'm getting a lot of pushback from providers that I uh, had one that reminded me that they paid a lot of money for their EMR. And, and if it wasn't right, if it wasn't giving the right codes, then they couldn't, they, those EMRs wouldn't be successful. And we have to remember that the coding assist software is just that it's, it's assist. It still requires human beings to look at it and to make those proper cal uh, uh, calculations. Almost lost the word there because I'm getting so excited about it. But um, yeah, we got to get involved with our EMRs. We've got to go in and build those proper templates, review those codes that are coming out. The codes that are recommended are not uh, always valid, right? They're subjective depending upon that information that goes in there. It's only picking up that natural language that's been pre-programmed into it. So. Well, and I think it also comes on the procedural side too. And I know Stephanie, you and I have had conversations about this. I think actually, I think all of us have is the fact, for example, cardiology, there's um, direction in the CPT book about a cath with an intervention. So mm -hmm. can you bill for it or not? You can if XYZ, you know, QRST, if all this thing, all these things happen, there's circumstances that some of these uh, AI programs cannot pick up. So if there's no catheter based service prior to the uh, intervention and the condition has not changed, then yes, you can bill for it because it's diagnostic. But when you have one doctor doing a heart cath and then they switch them to the interventionist because they don't do stents or what are angioplasties and that doctor injects again for setup angiography to set up the procedure, they don't get to charge for it again. The problem is, is that does, you know, does the artificial intelligence or the computer assisted coding program, do they know those nuances? They don't because the codes are the same. So those kinds of programs can't pick up circumstance. Um, you know, it, or even Terry, when, when we do a procedure just to verify that the, the procedure was a success or that the patient is ready to have that procedure done. Right. So it's neither diagnostic nor is it therapeutic, but because the computer assist picks up the term, then it automatically suggests that. And again, suggesting that that's that computer assist. We need to be able to look at it rationally and look at all of those guidances that are built into CPT to understand that, that when it's just a mission accomplished procedure, not diagnostic, not therapeutic, that's, that's just an integral part of that whole procedure there. Well, I have a question for Scott and Paul on this, because this actually, it, it just kind of popped in my head. Christine and I are talking about things that the physicians actually are doing, but maybe in the circumstance, they shouldn't be picking it up based on if it's diagnostic or therapeutic, or is it just set up or whatever. But what if the dictation's wrong? <laughs> so now <laughs> that chat GPT or that is, is picking up something that was dictated incorrectly, because I'm hearing some doctors dictate prior to the procedure, for simplicity, Scott, go. <laughs> I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I will periodically, and I think I'm probably not alone, I see charges come through where the provider had intended to do the dictation and didn't. Um, we see situations where the provider is mischaracterizing within the structure of an E&M note what he or she is doing with respect to the guidelines. You know, I, I've seen this before with, uh, the provider describing something in in a dictated note 
as I independently interpreted these three x-ray images of the foot. And then I turn around and I see the provider billing for that interpretation. So whatever you give it, that's what you're going to get back. And I, I mean, we've, we've all heard these wacky, I don't know if we all have, but we've all heard these wacky stories in the news the past couple of weeks where, you know, some AI service for Bing was trying to get the guy to like leave his wife or it or whatever. These things only take what you give them and they attempt to apply it. But if, if you give them even a modicum of incorrect detail, then it, who knows where it's going to go. Right. And, and so those are just a couple of examples of things that I've seen. I hadn't heard the one about leaving the wife, but I find that amusing. <laughs> I think it was Bing. It wasn't chat GPT. I heard Bing something about also um, fighting with the, the real person because they didn't agree with what they were saying to do. And it got very heated. And I'm like, it's a machine. What the heck? So I, I don't know. I, I it, it scares me. Some of the things that, that I see out there that we're relying too much on shortcuts. Okay. You well, know, there, there's just, oh my gosh, it's crazy. You know, well, I think all of I, us, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I think all of us as coders learned within one week of having our first coding job that there's theory and there's practice. Uh, and what you get from computer assisted coding in the same way that you get from your coding education is theory. And then you get down uh, into the front lines of actually a human reviewing a piece of documentation and selecting the correct CPT codes for it, uh, taking into account things such as NCCI and other, uh, you know, coding uh, guidance, and you realize that uh, practice is much different from what you were taught. Uh, and you know, a you know, machine learning is wonderful if the machine knows what it's doing, uh, and it requires uh, one heck of a teacher as as we've all learned as the uh, the world of the internet and data sharing and other uh, aspects of a technological world have attempted to evolve. Well, I've even heard vendors out there telling doctors that, you know, if you try to bill it, you'll probably get paid. And I, I it drives me crazy because payment is does not mean accurate. And we all have said that, you know, we hear that all the time just because, yeah. you know, or I got paid. But I'm like, you know, billing isn't about hoping to get paid. It's expecting to get paid from a clean claim. Yeah. If you're if you're hoping to get paid, that's like throwing spaghetti at a wall and hope it sticks. You know, it, eventually it's going to fall off. And, yeah. you know, and it's just it, it's amazing to me how people tie reimbursement yeah. to compliance. I yeah. mean, we are in the compliance guy and that's not a good that's not a good practice. Well, I mean, it it requires a reassessment of the goal. You know, payment is not the goal. Compliant payment is the goal. You know, right. and how how you reach that goal is very important. It's not a matter of listening to a vendor. It's not a matter of listening to a machine. It's a matter of uh, experience and applying the skills that you've learned within that experience to receive payment in a compliant fashion that's not going to be asked uh, to be returned within the next three years. I, I just want to add real quick, some of what I've seen too from the vendors, I don't know that it necessarily falls into the uh, machine learning category necessarily but there's vendors who are trying to automate as well and that can be just as risky because you know just last week i'm looking at notes and it's saying patient was moderately complex because and there's a whole bunch of generic language and it's like if the rest of your note does not reflect what it is that you're stating when you say moderate it doesn't matter that you put the words in from 
the guidelines, we're not going to get there anyways. And one other thing that I've seen too, when when they say something like the patient was counseled on over-the-counter medication and there is an entire paragraph about a good three to four sentences about counseling on over-the-counter medication, it still takes you nowhere and then your notes look cloned. So, you know, we have to be mindful of all of this. It's kind of like what we were trying to focus on when 2021 guidelines started. We're looking for quality, we're not looking for quantity. And some of these computer assisted programs in whichever way they're doing that are really just bloating all of the notes up again. I'm well, seeing that I, too, I Stephanie. I have a, I had, I'm in the middle of this, this audit that I was sharing. And so each note is anywhere from eight to nine pages long. And each note is just a series of, of clicks. So it's a series of macros over and over and over again. And what's funny is, is that I know that I've had personal conversations with providers where they've educated me that we're all unique individuals. One person's hypertension at this level may be too high, but another patient's hypertensive level over here, that, that same level that's too high here could be just right over here. So if you're as a, as a physician telling me that each patient is, is unique in itself and its treatment and its presentation and its, its condition itself, then how are you so reliant on this EMR that is absolutely cookie cutter? Well, try the virtual care. I'm, I'm getting so much telehealth inquiries now. I've had eight payers say, we need you to look at this. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, the blues are contacting me daily. Did and you what have I'm the dermatologist seeing, that did the biopsy via telehealth? Because I had that one. Yeah, I had the, the doctor put actually in there from, again, his computer-assisted coding that the range of motion on the patient's knee and um, something about the resistance, uh, you know, and doing things on the exam. And I questioned the doctor. I said, but you weren't there. Was there, was there a parent there? Was there, was there a spouse there that was helping out? He's like, oh, that just pulls forward. <laughs> like, okay, but you're trying to build a telehealth visit when you're putting in an exam that, that was impossible. You know, that, that Here, like Sean says, that medically impossible that, day. <laughs> yeah. Here's something that concerns me about this computer assisted coding. And I don't think providers take this into consideration when they use these, we'll call them new and emerging technologies um, within the EMRs. If you are reliant on the computer to code your services for you, if there's an allegation of violation of the False Claims Act, or that worse, there's a allegation or an indictment brought against you for a scheme or an artifice artifice against the federal payer programs you can't blame the computer <laughs> you are the person ultimately responsible because your attestation on the back of a cms 1500 form indicates that the claim is clean and accurate and a true representation of what transpired during the physician or we'll say provider patient encounter. Scott, what do you want to say about this? So one of the points that I wanted to make, I wanted to pick up on something that Stephanie had mentioned about 
some of the templating that's going on in the assessment and plan and how this relates to computer assisted coding, as well as the roles of the coders themselves. So I've started to see some notes where they are so heavily templated. It's like reading like a series of macro statements jarbled together in a way that barely make any sense. So, you know, I've seen a note that says, you know, the status of this condition is unstable. The patient requires ongoing medication to manage this condition. The patient requires labs ordered at a frequency uh, based on the severity of the condition. And I'm reading all of this and I'm getting to the part where, of course, they're coding it as a level four. And I'm getting to the part where I'm saying, I have no idea what medication this patient takes for this condition. I have no idea if you're managing it today or not. I have no, no idea what labs you're really ordering. It's just a, a, a it's a amalgamation of words that don't have any real value. And I think when, you know, when you're in a coding position within an organization, this is the competition that's coming for your job. And if you're letting it, you know, if you're not delivering the value that you know sits behind, uh, you know, that what you bring to the documentation, that's gonna put you at risk, right? In addition to putting the organization at risk, it's gonna put you at risk because if the providers feel like they don't need your professionalism and your effort, you know, that that's gonna have an influence, right? But I, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to see so many things, you know, the, the, the terms and phrases that are part of the 2021 guidelines, the provider will just place that phrase in the note, but not really contextualize it in any way. So the provider says, I think this is a new diagnosis with uncertain prognosis. And I'm looking and I'm saying, well, you know, this person has a URI, like I don't really understand it. And so, you know, when you introduce computer assisted coding and AI into that formula, it's not going to go well. Yeah, it's Chris, only going to take. What do you want to talk about? Go ahead, Stephanie. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying it's only going to take you so far because, you know, even when we teach the guidelines, there's still subjectivity that exists. I personally appreciate that we now have more, or I feel like there's more definitions from AMA in this round of guidelines, but we still have subjectivity. So if you think about a computer deciding something for a provider, how do you know acute uncomplicated versus acute complicated? How can it determine that? Yeah, no, that's a great observation. Here, here's one of the other things that I would say. Um, I, I, I equate computer-assisted coding with that of our next topic. Coders, billers who have earned a certification, and I'll pause there. So I know, Terry, you kind of had a special interest in this one. So why don't I let you kind of kick this one off? Well, I'm trying to remind me what we're talking about here. So um, as far as having a certification, but not really in your specialty, they don't really understand the nuances of what's going on there. And then if you do an that, external and audit. I think, yeah, that and I, and I think we should also address some of what we're seeing going on Um with those that possess the foundational credential, right, the CPC, right. so what's, using yeah, what's, that right. as an advanced credential, right? Because I think all of us on the call may have a CPC. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think most of us do anyway. 
Um, and you know, that's something, I mean, I've had mine since 92. So how long ago was that? 30 years now, 31 years. So, um, but that's not everything we have. We have to continue to grow in our knowledge, grow in our specialty and continue to get certifications in, in what we're doing and, you know, and auditing in um, it procedurally, whatever, that's one thing. But from what I've also learned is that some of the internal audits, and this is not to discount anybody who's doing internal audits, who is listening to this, um, you know, we appreciate you and we, and we, we definitely want you to keep doing it. But I think sometimes you also have a stake in it. I know that there's some people that do internal audits that say, well, I don't want to make my provider upset or, you know, they, they might fire me if I give them the, the real information of what's going on. Um, I had a recent thing happen just recently to me where um, I have a very large group, over 150 physicians, and they decided to carve out part of their auditing because they didn't like the results they were getting to a group that only charges eight to $10. And by uh, further investigation by some trusted sources, thank you, Christine, um, that take, took a look at that, um, they use AI for their auditing. And I'm just like, oh, just kill me now. But you get what you pay for. And of course, you can find somebody who's a yes man who will say, yes, you're doing it right. You can always pay for that. But are you doing it right? And so I think, I think sometimes not only do you have to do your due diligence in what software company people are using, what AI system they're using, but also the people you're using and what is their experience or you know their their certification their credential behind what they're doing and i'm not saying every auditor has to have a specific auditing credential i'm not saying that because if you've got somebody who's got 15 years in auditing you know it you know something like that and they have that track record then you know i i'd be fine with that but if you've got somebody who's trying to tell you you know how to do something in dermatology and has never worked in the specialty or cardiology and has never worked in the specialty, just, I could just keep going with each specialty, you're going to have a problem because there's nuances to specialties that you have to take into account. Otherwise, that information is, is just not credible. And Terry, you know, if, if they're hiring these companies that are running it through an AR, AI software, then are, the, are they really taking compliance seriously? Do they really want to do the right thing? Um, another audit that I'm doing right now that that maybe an AI wouldn't catch is while overcoding is happening on one side, on the other side, there are so many other procedures that are being done that are documented very nicely that are never getting captured. So I'm almost looking at a, we just need to go in and re-educate so that they can justify the right E&M visit and capture all these other procedures that are happening that are not getting reported. It will balance out, but AI is never going to be able to do that for you. They're never well, going to be able to show you those opportunities. What's funny is that the, the, the company that took over this one provider in particular um, at the $10 claim, that doctor just got a UPIC audit for doing too many level fives on, on uh, telehealth that I, I hate to say I told you so, but that was my, my beef. It was like, you can't have 96% level fives. I don't care, you know, what your specialty is. And I won't say it because then you'll, you know, people know who the doctor is, but I get a lot of physicians in certain specialties say, well, my specialty, they're sicker. Anybody get that? Well, my patients are sicker. Who gets that? Yeah. Uh -huh. I and could be like, retired now if I had a nickel for <laughs> yeah. every doctor who said that to me in the last 22 years. Yeah, my patients are sicker. Okay. They're, they're, it's hard to start, 
you know, your, your counter argument when you get that, that in front of you. And then you get, well, I get paid or you get what Christine, you know, gets. Well, of course it's right because the computer I use and the software I use, you know, has to be of that level. But when you, when you, and you don't want the provider to get an audit, but you just know it's coming if they don't listen to you. And then when you see it happen, you're just like, I tried to tell you, I tried to tell you. So I know we could probably talk this death, Sean. I know you've got some, you want to move on. So go ahead. Well, no, I, no, I, listen, here's a couple of things that I want to talk about. Um, and, and I'll take, I'll shoulder this one to shield anybody else on this call from whatever may come from what I say, but here's the deal. Um, you need to vet the companies. If you're going to outsource your coding and billing services very carefully, I have nothing against our friends overseas. I have nothing against anybody doing outsourced uh, contract work. But you have an obligation to get it right. You have a responsibility both ethically and morally as well as legally to get things right. And if you are outsourcing your coding services or your billing services. Let's let's go with code coding and billing. If you are outsourcing your coding and billing services to an offshore company and they tell you that they have people here in the United States ask to interview the person or persons who will be specifically assigned to you as a client. Get on the phone, talk to them, ask them where in the United States are you located? The, the fact that there are, and look, it, it should come as no surprise. There are unethical people in every industry. But in healthcare, because of how regulated we are, and how overzealous prosecutors are, and how anxious and chopping at the bit investigators are, you should want to make sure that you, as the client to a coding and billing company, have done your diligence. You have dotted the I's and crossed the T's. Having them say to you that, oh, we, we have people based here in the U.S., that doesn't necessarily mean that their coders and billers are based here in the U.S. I came off of a case last year where the third-party entity swore we have a U.S.-based operation. It amounted to a 200-square-foot room in a professional building that had one administrative person in there answering the phones that was tied into a network that could send the calls anywhere overseas where the people were. Everything that was uploaded was uploaded into the cloud and then dispersed. The thing that you have to remember, and in this case, it was a great reminder for me and for everybody else that was working on this case, that foreign governments are never going to take the side of a U.S.-based company against 
a national of that country. There are certain countries that have a 15-year wait in the civil courts before a case could be heard. So, again, do they have a corporate compliance program? Is it a corporate compliance program that is specific to third-party billing companies? How often is it audited and monitored? Folks, you got to remember, these third-party organizations, even if you hire Doctors Management or Sterling Global or Terry Fletcher Consulting, every one of these organizations is an extension of your organization. You don't get to point the finger and say, well, that's Sean's fault. No, that's your fault. Because the government's going to say, you should have known. You have a legal obligation to know. You have to demonstrate a culture of compliance in your organization. And you have not audited or monitored your third-party billing company. You didn't even know they didn't have a corporate compliance program. You thought they were U.S.-based when the only thing they had was one person in a 200-square-foot office with a phone system that automated everything to different parts of the world. Folks, this is not about trying to dissuade you from using a third-party billing and coding company. It's not. There are some great organizations out there. There are great billing companies out there. Go to the American Medical Billing Association, AMBA, if you're looking for a quality organization. But what bothers me is when we have credentialing bodies that are controlled by other individuals with competing interests to those here in the U.S. and who will stoop to any means necessary to gain your business. I tell people all the time, you don't have to go with the most expensive, but be very leery of the cheapest. Because there is an old adage, you get what you pay for. And I will say this, what I just shared with everybody on this podcast, these are my thoughts, these are my opinions, and mine alone. My esteemed panelists may or may not agree with the things that I'm saying, and I'm not going to ask them one way or another. So with that said, I will pass the baton around the roundtable to any of our panelists who have anything that they'd like to add. So I have something real quick on this. Um, just from my personal experience, you know, it's interesting to me when I hear people say, you know, we're going to have you meet with our client because they like the way I'm explaining something. I understand the situation. I understand the code set. I understand what's lacking from documentation. And you know, they want me to be the forefront of that because they feel that the others are not able to come forward and probably articulate in the same way. So one of the things that I wonder, and I, I don't know personally because I don't know the businesses, I don't know what goes into their training, 
But one of the things that stands out to me is it's almost like the validation part is similar to what we've been talking about with the computer assisted side, where, you know, you can only abstract to a certain amount. A computer can't come back and give you its thoughts on what's missing, on what's compliant, um, you know, how to restructure templates and things like that. And, you know, when I'm asked to speak to a client's um, physician, for example, to explain because they don't feel that the people who look at their work day in and day out can do that. It's just, um, you know, it's questionable as to how that's happening and how the work is up to a certain level of quality if you can't have those conversations with the team directly. I, I think those are great points. Those are all valid points. Um, okay. Let's go ahead and keep moving forward. I want to I want to get into our last topic of discussion today and we may we may not get a full hour out of today's episode, but I'm okay with that because I think the content that's being shared is tremendous. Um I want to talk about the waivers of copays and or deductibles and why it's illegal. So Terry, I, I gave you the opportunity to start the last conversation. I'll give you the first opportunity here again, um, only because I'm feeling like being nice. So <laughs> let me go ahead and, and, and give you the center square for a little while and okay. uh, take it away. Okay. So, yeah, this is a, a topic I sent over to Sean yesterday because in the group because um, it came up on an OIG blip that there was a physician that had to pay back some money because of the um, legal problem with waiving copays and deductibles, but I know I want everybody to be able to chime in on this. So what I wanted to bring to this conversation, since the public health emergency is going to end in two months, I wanted everybody to be clear on what the COVID response to this is. So the pandemic. So let me just explain because we've had two presidents now during the pandemic that have gone on TV and given wrong information. And I'm just going to say it. So that's a that's a non-political statement because both of them did it. So let's just put it out there. Um, and I was sitting at my kitchen table um, right during the height of the pandemic when, when Trump did it. And I looked up and went, that's not the rule. And then I heard Biden just do it not too long ago. And I'm like, that's still not the rule. Okay, and we're three years into it. So here we go. So first of all, when March 1st was when everything kind of became effective and of 2020, what was the rule when it came to waving out of pocket for COVID testing? Did you hear the word testing? Okay. You were able to put the CS. So Cat Scott, see Scott, I shot you out there. It's Cat Scott modifier on the end of any testing information and, or any testing services. And then Medicare, I can't speak for the private insurers, but Medicare said, we will pay you hundred percent. So please don't charge the patients their share of costs. This is for testing. Treatment, on the other hand, is different. And this is what they were saying that was incorrect. They were saying that COVID treatment was free to patients. No, no, no. What it was, COVID treatment was covered by your insurance if you had it. There were some allowances made for people who are indigent. But if you wanted to waive the out-of-pocket, okay, for COVID treatment, not testing, you were allowed to do that. And OIG said, we will not enforce or pursue any kind of sanctions against you if you want to do that. However, you're not making up that 20%. You're not making up that deductible or copay. So if you're doing it, you're doing it and losing the money, but you're fine to do it if you want to. And they would not 
say anything. That's only during the PHE. That ends, okay, that ends on May 12th, the day after the PHE ends. So we can't do that after that. The other thing is telehealth. Telehealth for many private payers, mine included, they'll say if you use your telehealth benefit, you don't have a deductible or, co deductible or copay. They call it VIP services. Okay. So they're basically encouraging you not to go into the office. I don't like it, but you know, if I have to use it, I guess that that's helpful. But that's what that's for. So also when you get into the other services, and again, this was the thing that was a problem, is somebody even told me, several people told me that if you waive the deductible and copay during the pandemic, then nobody's going to come after you. Wrong. You, We've already seen it. The one that I sent to uh, the group over the weekend from the OIG post was actually from 2020. So it was recent. That was right in the height of the pandemic. And so it's just for certain services that they allow. Now, moving forward, and then I'll put it out to the rest of the panel so you guys get sick of hearing me talk all the time, is basically when it comes to the to deductible and copay waiving, remember, there's something called an actual charge and then the charge that you're submitting. And the payers want part of that discount. So take it away, whoever wants to. It's funny that you mentioned that, Terry, because I, I was just posted in the in the group chat here. I had a client a couple of weeks ago. And they asked, hey, Christine, when can I start collecting copays again? You know that during the PHE, we can't collect any copays from the patients. And I'm like, what? Where did you get that? Oh, it came out in the beginning of COVID. That's why it's so important. And I just want to put this in there that you have somebody, a consultant, where it's our job to get the information every day to tell you that it's only for this or it's only for that or even better have a compliance program in place that you can write. We're, 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 we're out of this period of time. We need to go back to doing this or, you know, whatever that might be, but to just be sitting there for all that, how much money did he lose? First of all, second, just as you were saying, Terry, there's the, 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 the actual amount. And if you're going to be discounting this price by waiving the copay. So if it's a hundred dollar charge, but the patient has a $20 copay, you're going to waive that $20, then it's really an $80 charge. And that's what you need to tell Medicare. It, it was actually an $80 charge because I chose to give this person a discount. They're still going to be subject to coinsurance because that's the way the benefits are set up. Yeah. And I, I would just add to that. I think, you know, and Sean, Sean and I were involved in a case last year that was rooted pretty heavily in the notion of the provider simply waiving deductibles and coinsurance, like making no effort to collect these items. Now, in some instances, these were pretty significant amounts of money, but in this world of high deductible health plans, that's going to happen. Uh, that's going to, there are going to be circumstances where the patient's out-of-pocket expense may turn out to be pretty high. And as the provider, you can't really say, well, I'm going to make so much money on this patient over the course of the year that I don't need to be aggressive about this $500 or the $600 or whatever or whatever that is, right? Like setting aside the co-pays, which is also not an insignificant item. And I think, you know, sort of going back to what Terry said about presidents misspeaking, you know, and, and really what we've talked about compliance wise from the get-go compliance should be like a fundamental part of the like the dna of the organization right like getting it right having a compliance plan not just saying 
you know, somebody came in and said, well, I heard on TV this morning while I was making breakfast that I don't have to collect any copays or that I'm not allowed to collect any copays because at the end of the day, as the provider, these things ultimately become your responsibility. And, and I've said to providers in training sessions before, when they blame somebody else, you know, it's I, it used to come up a lot with family and social history. Well, it's not, it wasn't my responsibility to collect that. It was the medical assistance responsibility. And I would always say like, when you sign the note, think of it as like signing a mortgage, like you own the whole thing. And you know, when you, when you sign for the mortgage, right, if the roof caves in, you have to fix it. And when you sign for your note, if there's missing information or there are things that aren't compliant, you're responsible for it. And I would say the same thing about deductibles and copays. And, you know, some of that I would also apply to, you know, when patients have high deductible plans and you're trying to, you know, give them discounts as you're reporting, you know, full amounts through to the insurance, that's, that is a function of fraud. I mean, there are, you know, there are programs in place, there are items within contracts for patients who really can't afford to pay and waivers for those types of reasons. But if you're getting in the habit of telling the payer you did something different than the thing that you actually did, that's a fraudulent behavioral pattern. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Scott. So let's let's talk about, you know, why it's illegal for what they refer to as charge-based providers um, who routinely and, 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 and consistently waive Medicare co-payments or deductibles. There's two things that make it unlawful. The first is that it potentially violates the False Claims Act, okay? <clears throat> the False Claims Act is a knowledge base act. That means you acted in, in, in deliberate ignorance or reckless re disregard, which is also known as gross negligence. Or you knowingly submitted claims to Scott and Christine's point that you knew not to be lawful. You knew not to be accurate and true. So that's the first reason why the, the routine waiver of Medicare co-payments and deductibles is illegal. The second is that you could potentially violate the anti-kickback statute. Again, remember, you know. If you are receiving any type of remuneration, whether it's in cash or in kind, for referrals, or in this case, offering or soliciting a beneficiary services for which they don't have to pay because we're going to take what insurance pays or we're an insurance only, you are violating the anti-kickback statute. Okay. Remember, if there's an excessive utilization of items or services that are paid by Medicare, and they could tie it back to the fact that you are waiving copays and/or deductibles, now you may have graduated. Congratulations to a potential violation of the healthcare fraud statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 1347 which is conspiracy to commit um, um, healthcare fraud, okay? Remember that a charge-based provider is one who is paid by Medicare on the basis 
of a reasonable charge. That goes to what Christine said. So for the item or service that you're providing, you have fee schedules. And if you are willing to take less money from the patient, then you have to be willing to take less money from the payer. Now, Sean, what about, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, but uh, remember when we had the case where the government actually wanted to bring up the fact that the self-pay patients were being billed an incredibly low amount. So, you know, how many times I've even conducted audits and you see a level two build and you see level two and you know, oh, well, that must have been self-pay because the provider thinks, you know, I'm just going to charge this, this patient differently. But, you know, not only are the commercial payers and, and the government payers looking at consistency with their contracts, there's times they're going to dig in and see what you're doing overall with everybody. So, you know, you can't just treat a certain subset of patients differently. You need to have those policies in place. And I know the majority of the people we work with, they don't even have any kind of, you know, self-pay policy or hardship policy or anything written into their office. So you raise some excellent points, right? So remember that the criteria for determining what charges are reasonable are actually contained within regulations, right? There are actual regulations for this. And they look at things like the actual charge for the item or service. They look at the customary charge for the item or service. They look at the prevailing charge in the same locality for similar items or services. Remember, the, the, the Medicare reasonable charge cannot exceed the actual charge for the item or service. And often, it cannot exceed the customary charge or the highest, what they call the highest prevailing charge for the item or service. Now, any provider or practitioners or suppliers, let's, let's throw DME into this because DME is always getting looked at, right? Any provider, practitioner, supplier who is routinely waiving Medicare copayments or deductibles is actually misstating its actual charge. So as an example, to use Christine's uh, 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 you know, uh, thought process from, from before, if a supplier claims that it's charged for some kind of equipment, I don't know, we'll call it a, a CPAP, okay, is 80 bucks. Medicare should be paying 80% of $80, right? 64 bucks. Let's use simple math. Rather than 80% of $100 or $80. So in this situation, this example that I'm giving you, as a result of a misrepresentation of the actual charges, the Medicare program is essentially paying $16 more for the same item than what they should have paid. Folks, this is why you have to understand how Medicare regulations work. You got to have one fee schedule, okay? Set that fee schedule at a percentage above RBRVS. Now, you talk to somebody like Frank Cohen and Frank says, ah, Sean, I don't like doing it that way. There's a whole computation that I like to use that does X, Y, and Z and blah, 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 blah. And you are correct. There is, but there's nothing that precludes a provider from 
looking at cost of living in an area because Medicare uses a geographical practice cost indice, right? A, G, a GPCI to determine the cost of services in that particular area. And if you set your fee schedule at 150 to 300% of Medicare, depending on where you live in the country, it's okay. You're going to be fine. And you can give discounts for cash paying patients. But I often hear from people, but Sean, you can't charge different patients differently. No, for Medicare, all Medicare beneficiaries have to be charged the same amount for the same service. But cash pay patients, they're entitled to a discount. Because remember, even though you bill $100 for a service, that doesn't mean that's the allowable for Medicare. Medicare's allowable may only be $60, for which they pay. 80% of $60. So just keep that in mind. There's a lot of moving parts on this stuff. Paul, Scott, any any questions, comments, concerns, anything else you want to throw into the mix? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think what I what I see often, even when we come down to things like copay waivers that may have some legitimacy, is document your activities and make sure you're doing these things in an objective way. So if you're saying that like your policy for a copay waiver is X percent of the federal poverty level as the income, make sure you've got that plan in place because, you know, we've talked about fraud a couple of times in this, in this podcast, and certainly we've talked about it in the past and fraud requires intent. And sometimes, you know, I've, I've probably worked with groups before where I say, well, I don't think they have any intent. They just don't know what they're doing uh, on any level when it comes to these topics, but that's not going to preclude a prosecutor or investigator from thinking there's intent just based on these activities. So if you're doing things that do involve your, your charge structure or working against your charge structure, you should be documenting that. So in most instances, so I know I worked with a client in New York recently, and New York had a specific reg that basically said right out in the open, like we are not expecting you to collect a copay or a deductible if the cost to collect that money exceeds what you're going to receive. But that's a documentable thing versus just doing nothing and saying nothing, right? So by the time you factor in the cost of like a New York City-based staff member, in addition to the stamps and everything else, you might come to a place where you say, hey, you know what? It's not worth running after this $50, but there still should be some documentation in motion. Now, you know, I would also say in, cl in closing, as I always do, it never ceases to amaze me how bad practices are at collecting that money on the front end. I can't tell you how many times as a patient, I literally have my credit card in my hand and they tell me that they're going to go ahead and bill me. And I say, not how I would do it, but um, I, I think those are important points. Yeah, great. I wanted uh, to bring something one up last thing, and then Paul, go ahead, Terry. Yeah, there's something that I think a lot of people also with the new No Surprise Act, they think that they can't charge the patients, they're out of pocket, and that's not the case. So remember, I, I'm still getting that. Well, the No Surprise Act says I can't charge patients anymore. I'm like, what are you reading? <laughs> what just so just in this conversation, the No Surprise Act means that you can't charge a patient an out-of-network cost if they're in an in-network facility. So if they're in an in-network facility, the assumption they're making is that there's an in-network provider and so their share of cost is going to be what they think their contract is doesn't apply to medicare so we're talking about commercial a patients. great point 
Yeah. And then if it's a cash Great patient, point. you have to give them a financial agreement, just like you would any cash patient within a $400 either way. So if you go over $400, they can actually file something against you. So make sure that you get as close as you can, but you still can collect what the patient owes. So Paul, sorry about that. I just want to clarify. Um, you know, the, the key, uh, and I, it's not worded this way, but, uh, you know, uh, the words that I always like to use in cases like this is undue incentive. You know, when you write off co-pays and deductibles and co-insurance, what you're providing to that patient is an undue incentive to seek care at your facility or in your office in order to make their out-of-pocket costs lower. And, you know, it, it seems like a simplification of all of the uh, things that Sean talked about, but it really is the easiest way to explain it to a physician or to a practice. It's, it's basically, you know, if, if all things being equal with Dr. A and Dr. B and you're doing the same things, if suddenly Dr. A is taking a portion of the patient responsibility off the table as a matter of course, that works as an undue influence for that patient to seek care from Dr. A. It, you know, and and it, it's a simplification, but at the end of the day, uh, there are so many ramifications to that uh, from a legal perspective that it's not something you ever want to get involved with. Well, just to make it simple, it's it's unfair behavior. You're altering someone's choice. Go to you for no copay for for free something. So it's unfair essentially you're lying to the insurance company and you're stealing in some respect or another. So it's unfair. You're lying and you're stealing. I mean, if you really want to get down to the short term of it, that's it. That's what's happening there. And there are repercussions for those types of behaviors. No, absolutely. Here, here's the last thing that I'll talk about in this section. And I posted it over, in the comments, somebody asked me if I could post, um, you know, sort of a summation of the laws and everything. So what I, what I posted is the following. Whoever submits a false claim to the Medicare program, for example, a claim misrepresents an actual charge may be subject to criminal, civil, or administrative liability for making false statements and or submitting false claims to the government. 18 U.S.C. 287 and 1001. It's also under 31 U.S.C. 3729, 42 CFR, which is the Code of Federal Regulations, 1328 through 7A. And it goes on to state that penalties can include imprisonment, criminal fines, civil damages and forfeitures, civil monetary penalties and exclusions from Medicare. And I will tell you, I am dealing in a case right now today that I just got done writing my report for where uh, forfeitures were in full effect. Um, and exclusion from Medicare and the state health care programs. In addition, anyone who routinely waives co-payments or deductibles can be criminally prosecuted under 42 uh, USC 1320A7BB and excluded from participating in Medicare and the state health care programs under the anti-kickback statute, 42 USC 1320A7B and 7. And finally, anyone who furnishes items or services to patient substantially in excess of the needs of such patients can be excluded from Medicare and the state health care programs under 42 USC 1320 A7B6B. So 
there's your citations for the things that we were talking about today. All right, let me go around the panel because I actually thought we were going to end early and we're actually probably ending right on time. So what a great conversation. So let me start with you, Paul, since you were the least talkative today. Let me go to you first. Uh, well, um, you know, <laughs> you know, just to reiterate some of the things we talked about earlier in the uh, in the uh, podcast today, uh, you know, I'm thinking a lot about templated uh, surgical notation. And then I think about when things uh, somewhat go off the rails or when you encounter something unexpected, uh, such as a modifier 22 uh, uh, situation. And uh, just earlier this, uh, late last week, uh, Stephanie and I had some good con conversations about the 22 modifier. That's not something that computer assisted coding can pick up on uh, because there are very specific things that you need to look for in order to qualify for a 22 modifier. Uh, and it also could lead to uh, a number of different things down the road if it's picking out uh, things that uh, are bundled as part of that uh, procedure and they're trying to build that separately. So uh, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to sound like the Unabomber, but uh, there was, there was a time before machines when things went pretty well, you know, uh, just, you know, let's ease into it. And, you know, we don't just all go into uh, the immediate West world of computer assisted coding. I think All if you're going right. to so go let me down go that... next to uh sorry. Let, let me go next to Magnum PI in Honolulu. <laughs> no, look, I, I said it a little bit before, but uh, you know, I would relate this to you know, AI copay waivers, like having set compliance policies that you follow, that you take seriously and are important to you solves a lot of problems because it seeds you with the notion, regardless of what topic we're bringing up, that you want to do it the right way. And I think a lot of these shortcuts, whether it's AI-centered coding or over-reliance on templates, you know, look, I have providers say to me all the time, well, I think the odds that I'm going to get caught are quite low. And, you know, I think a lot of people say that until they get caught. And, and you don't want to be the person taking on the United States government. And so it's really just to me, that notion of having a sense of curiosity of what the right way to do things is from a compliance perspective and doing those things. I don't think we're anywhere near a place where AI is prepared to code the nuances of documentation within medical notes based on what I see right now. All right, let's go to Stephanie. Okay, so real quick, I just want to point out we do tend to talk quite a bit here about documentation, coding, billing. But I think the conversation today really opened up more into the revenue cycle. And, you know, just like external audits can be important to get that pulse and really understand where you're at. This right here, if this has felt overwhelming to you today, it's because you probably need a revenue cycle review done. Um, you know, that's where we take a look beginning to end and see where these things are missing. Look at all of the policies. That's really how we would identify something like this because it can be overwhelming if you're not really sure what you're dealing with or even what you should be looking for. But just like external audits, this type of thing can be looked at through those revenue cycle reviews. Excellent points. All right, Christine, your turn. 
Um, so I was going to piggyback right off of, it was great. Uh, Scott, Stephanie, it was almost like you were living in my brain. So if you're going to use computer assist or you're going to, you know, rely on that EMR computer assist, at least have your compliance program working where you're doing your audits quarterly um, or, or at least twice a year quarterly. Let's just say quarterly. This is where we're going to find those little problems as they arise. Is there a template that we can tweak? Is there a macro that we can identify that's being overutilized? Is there areas of opportunity? So I don't want to come off as, as Christine's totally against computer assist, but let's make it work for us. Let's make sure we're doing those human audits where we can identify any of those potential risks or opportunities that the computer assist can't find. All right. Great Enjoy points. And <laughs> last word. And the last word. Okay. So I'm going to put just bring it back to compliance and just let everybody know as we've talked about compliance plans, compliance programs. I'm going to say compliance policy. Make sure that when you're talking about waiving, and hopefully it's very, very, very rare, out of pocket or collecting. Let's go there. Collecting copays, deductibles, patient share of cost, that you have a compliance policy that everyone follows in your practice, especially for those larger practices with multiple physicians, because everyone wants to write off in for, uh, out of pocket for friends. No. Out of pocket for you know your mother-in-law's sister's brother. No. So you have to have policies in place that everybody follows because patients talk in the waiting room. And you'll have one patient say, hey, guess what my doctor does? And another patient say, wait, mine doesn't write that off. And now you've got a problem. So just for that, you, you need to get on board with compliance and a policy there. All right. Good deal. Thank you. All right. So I think it's been decided that I'm Sean Weiss. Stay classy, healthcare. If you haven't watched Ron Burgundy, you wouldn't find it funny, Anchorman. So I tried to throw a little humor into it. Apparently, nobody on this panel saw Ron Burgundy, but that's okay. Oh, I'm, I'm very um, familiar with Ron Burgundy. Scutchy, scutch, okay. scutch, scutch, scutch. Okay. And with that, thank you to each and every single one of y'all for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us just for a little while. We appreciate y'all so much. Terry and I will be back tomorrow with another uh, hashtag Terry Tuesday episode where we will be discussing what terry undercoating and how that can affect you undercoating wow i can't wait for that conversation all right so until then remember be good to yourself but more importantly y'all be good to each other take care you've been listening to the compliance guy sean has been doing this for 28 years he holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy. <laughs>